Welcome to The Lisa Show. Not only are we worried about not getting sick, but many have felt a heightened sense of fear as they walk um, from home, from like work or from the store, engaged with strangers, delivering packages to their doorstep, walking down empty streets, or even stay inside with family members who show tendencies towards domestic violence. Now, not all situations merit a 911 call. So how can we have peace of mind concerning our safety? Well, today we're speaking with Duran Kempel, the founder and CEO of Bond, a new mobile service that provides personal security for everyone in any situation through a single app. And he's here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Duran. Thank you, Lisa. Hi, Richie. Hello. Well, so first of all, tell us what Bond is and how it works. Thank you. So Bond is three and a half years old. We started the company in May 2017. And as you suggested, Lisa, Mm -hmm. the focus of Bond is to help people with enhanced personal security, and peace of mind. Peace of mind is very important because none of us are okay with the fact that people we love do not feel safe. Sure. And the issue is that we're very fortunate to live in this safe country, and 911 is an excellent service for cases of emergency. But most of us and people whom we love face numerous situations that are not initially an emergency, like walking alone at night, walking mm-hmm. to the car in the parking garage, being on a ride-sharing vehicle, being a real estate agent, showing an apartment to people we don't know, and yeah. sometimes just being with our children. Now, Bond is a platform mm-hmm. that uniquely anchors on 24-7 personal security agents in the Bond command centers. By the way, the full name of the company is Our Bond. And those agents, Lisa and Richie, are available within seconds via the app, the Bond app, uh-huh. that also offers very wide range of services that allow us to keep an eye on you, your loved ones, and even get you bodyguards on demand, as you said earlier. Now, we've, we have uh, over 100,000 members across the United States. We've taken care of people in over 40,000 cases, hmm. some of them quite severe, actually. And, and so specifically this bodyguard service, how, how does that part work and, and, and how much does it cost? Thank you. So if you think about it, think about the world before Uber. If we wanted a black car limousine, for most of us, that seems out of reach. You needed to order it a day in advance. You needed to commit to four hours. You need to commit to about $400. Yeah. It's just not something. We did the same thing to bodyguards that hmm. Uber did for overall transportation. And basically, VR app, or if you may, through the website, You reach out to us, you explain to us why you need a bodyguard, if he or she needs to be armed or not. In some cases, you just want somebody trustworthy to transport you and or your family or children to another location. And Bond oversees the whole uh, job. Now, to your question about cost, we made it uh, very affordable because we offer this to our members and it's available for just $50 per hour and 30 minutes for the first excuse me, $30 for the first 30 minutes. And the way you get that is by either downloading our app on the app stores, Our Bond Personal Security, or our website, Our Bond, like ourbondwithyou.com. Now tell me about these folks that will be bodyguards. I would imagine they have to be sort of screened and checked. Otherwise, we may be putting people in harm's way if those, if those you know bodyguards haven't been checked out. Great point. And that is something you cannot make any compromises on. So the bodyguards are licensed, trained bodyguards. They need to have a license in the state in which they operate. Typically, they're former U.S. Secret Service, former police officers, former military. They're trained, they're licensed. And those are the only people whom we offer. They can be armed or not. It can be a man or a woman, depending on the circumstance. And we oversee the whole engagement and uh, mission, so to speak. Okay, so help me understand what a typical situation for which you would use Bond would be used for. Okay, so let's start with uh, situations that are less uh, scary and get uh, to situations that are more scary. Okay. Most of our people, excuse me? Okay. Most people use services like video monitor me. You push the button, within a matter of seconds, a security agent appears via video on your screen. 
By the way, women prefer that service. 60% of the people use that are women. Men prefer a service that is called Ready and Agent. You tap a button and that alerts the security agents to your location. And if you remove your finger from the screen, that starts a countdown. And if you don't enter your passcode, we'll appear on video. Mm. So basically getting a security agent who's very empathetic to be by your side is very useful. There have been cases where somebody whom our member was concerned about was approaching her or him. Mm -hmm. They got one of our security agents on video on the phone and the agent says, let me speak with the approaching stranger. And then what the agent does is informing the approaching stranger that this is a live video recorded call. Now, people always ask me, well, Duran, what if somebody's attacking me with a gun? Well, if somebody's attacking me with a gun, it's a, it's a whole uh, different issue, but most perpetrators are opportunistic. Mm -hmm. They're making two assumptions. One, that you're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They're not going to attack somebody with the left tackle of the Green Bay Packers. Yep. And the second is that nobody's watching. By bringing somebody on mm -hmm. video on a recorded call, you take the second assumption away. People also use a popular service called Track Me On The Go. You enter your location, destination, and our systems and a group of professionals in our command centers called watchers are actually watching your transition from point A to B to C. If anything seems strange to us, we'll reach out to you. For example, if you said you're going to be walking and suddenly we notice that you're running or you're in a car, we would get worried. We would reach out to you. There's also security check. You're a real estate agent. You're entering into an open house with somebody you don't know. We ask Bond, check on me in 15 minutes or check on me at 5 p.m. We'd reach out to you. You'd give us a contact of somebody to reach out to if you don't respond. And if he or she doesn't respond, reach out to the authorities. And at the top line, of course, we orchestrate first responders if something bad has happened. And that could be domestic violence, sexual violence, other types of violence, even medical emergencies. And very importantly, think about it. When first responders, medics or police need to get to a certain situation, they do not have what people call situational awareness. They don't know yeah. what the member looks like. Mm -hmm. They don't know where he or she is. They don't know who else is involved. By offering that information, we increase the likelihood of a good outcome. And many times, our members feel better by having us by their side as the first responders arrive. And lastly, of course, bodyguards are used in variety of situations that we strive to make more normalized. Like uh, you're going on a night out with uh, some friends, get a bodyguard with you. You're sending your younger uh teenager uh, folks uh, out, maybe you want a bodyguard. Even adults, when they go out, they're going to have a few drinks in the bar, less relevant during COVID time. Maybe it makes sense to have somebody with them in the bar, making sure nobody drops anything in the drink, make mm. sure that everybody gets into ride-sharing vehicles and take everybody safely mm. home. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Duran Kempel, who is the founder and CEO of Bond, which is a mobile service that provides personal security for everyone in a myriad of situations, which we've sort of talked about. Um, Lisa did not want me to ask you this, but I'm wondering if there is any way that we can personally request Kevin Costner within the Bond. I him not to is mention that Kevin Costner. A bodyguard. I was, told, I was told not to do anything that Lisa doesn't Thank want. You. <laughs> <laughs> you were well informed. He's good. He's now, good. On a serious level, though, I wonder because there is so much crossover between um, kind of what you're doing and services like the the police and and some of those first responder services. How have they responded to this? They've been wonderful. So, by the way. In a normal non-COVID uh, year, the 911 service, and by the way, people should know there's more than 6,000 911 centers in the U.S. Each one is responsible for a specific geographical zone. So if you call 911 and I call 911, we're going to get completely different uh, professionals. Now, they are jammed. They're getting about 240 million calls per year. Wow. And many of those calls, most of those calls are not emergency. And right now, they're even swamped because a lot of the calls have to do with uh, COVID, etc. So the fact that we handle the situations do not yet rise to the level of a 911 call is a benefit for them, point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two is that they have been wonderful, and by law, and because they're very responsible and they want to help, when you call them to report about a situation that refers to somebody else, they would still help you. Now, when we call them and you hear a call between our security agents and one of the 911 dispatchers, that's a very professional call. There are no M's and ums and buts. 
Hi, this is Bon. I'm calling regarding one of our members. Uh, she's in a car. She's under duress. The car is moving. I need your help. I believe this is an emergency. 911 immediately understands that this is a professional speaking with a professional. They move mm. very quickly. There have been cases where we help uh, literally people who are under duress in some house or in a moving vehicle with strangers that way they feared. And they use the concealed chat function in order to tell our security agents that they're under duress. We reached out to 911 and we organized a search and rescue until that car stopped and they helped our member, a woman, and in another situation, go uh, get somebody out of an, a rental apartment where she was with other people whom she feared. Wow. 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 So the bottom line, 911 and first responders have been spectacularly uh, professional and efficient. And this is a win-win for our members, for the first responders, for the 911 uh, etc. Now, you're still relatively new. You've been around since May 2017. But where did you initially get this idea or recognize this need uh, in the public? Thank you. So um, I've been in the information technology infrastructure uh, business for the past uh, 20 years. Don't tell anybody. And when the prior <laughs> company got acquired, I took a long two-week vacation, and I sat down to think about what's next. And what you typically look for, Lisa, is a problem that is worthy of solving and is also feasible. And that's a problem that I became aware of in speaking with people, and I just didn't understand the magnitude. And when I started to analyze, without getting into frightening details about all the cases that occur... I realize that there are a lot of concerns that uh, people have that don't rise to the level of 911. I'm assuming that a lot of your listeners have never called 911 because we were told in elementary school, you only dial 911 if it's an emergency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And looking more into it, I understood that there's a personal security gap and that despite the fact that we live in this wonderful, safe country, it's not reasonable to expect the authorities to offer these particular services. Plus, a lot of our members want the privacy that you get from a company that is responsible only for you, that does not sell data, that does not advertise third-party products, and is not a uh, big brother, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So once we realized that, we checked if it's feasible to solve that. Clearly, there are a lot of technologies involved that were not available 10 years ago, but the heart of the service is the security agents and the human touch. So this is technology helping people help other people. As a business owner, I think that your response will be that people should use the Bond app. But I have a question. Uh, what are some things that people can do to just be more safe? Irrespectively of Bond, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, um, so first of all, um, I think that we as, as parents and individuals, we need to teach everybody to be very alert, uh, not to take uh, unnecessary uh, risks. So to be more open-minded, for instance, sadly, I was uh, interviewed by Wisconsin uh, television right after there was some shooting in the mall. So when you, you come into a mall and look at where the exit uh, signs are, be aware. If you see people who look a little strange to you, for instance, whenever I board a plane, I look around. And if I see somebody that looks a little odd to me, I go and I inform the authorities. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm keeping everybody uh, safe. So I think that attention and alertness is number one. And number two is uh, don't be shy. If you're concerned about something, better be safe. And I'm not saying be offensive to other people, etc., but find a diplomatically uh, correct way to make sure that you and people around you are not in harm's way. And there are other uh, cues, for instance, if you're inside your home and you hear noises outside, do not go outside. <laughs> Yeah. If you're walking in a parking garage and there is a van parked on the driver's side of your car, maybe you don't want to go to your car uh, by yourself. Maybe you wait for somebody. It's not uh, embarrassing. It's not shameful to be careful. And we all need to be very careful, not only for ourselves, but for everybody around us who's worried about us. And there are a lot of additional rules of thumb, so to speak. But I would, if I were to summarize to one thing is, mm -hmm. number one is, your eyes open, be alert, and secondly, be sensitive to other people, but don't be ashamed. Take action. If you think that there's a problem, go notify somebody without uh, being offensive. And, uh, of course, there's a fine line to walk here. Yeah. 
During this time of COVID, different security challenges have changed. What have you noticed as far as personal safety uh, and, and the different trends that have happened that concern you? Right. So when I look at the unfolding of COVID, approximately, let's assume that phase one is when we hear about it in December 2019, and then March arrives and we feel it. And that is when we ask uh, our employees to start working from home, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. And from that point, from March, there is a decline in people going outdoors. So we see a decline in the normal number of cases that have to do with mobility people wanting us to track them on the go. By the way, 9% of the calls into our command centers are from people on ride-sharing vehicles. Mm. They're not being attacked. Nothing is happening. They just don't want to be by themselves. They want us by their side. Yeah. And from March through June, there's a decline in the outdoor activities. And sadly, there's a rise in domestic violence and emotional despair uh, calls, as you might expect. And... Come June, there seems to be some optimism and the market seems to start opening uh, up again. And then in the last two or three uh, months, by the way, there was a spike around the elections. People were very concerned around the elections. People ordered a Mm. lot of bodyguards to protect their buildings, to go to various destinations, etc. After the election, there's been a little bit of a decline. People are more calm, but there's uh, still a level of uh, concern. So that's what we've seen. The sad part, of course, is the emotional despair and domestic violence that we've seen rise. Yeah, uh, it's a, a great uh, conversation that we've had and uh, really innovative what you have done in the last three and a half years with Bond. If people want to find uh, more about Bond and the Bond app, they can certainly download that app or they can go to ourbond.com to be able to learn more about Duran Kemple and this great organization that he's established. Thank you so much for being with us. So interesting to talk about personal safety, the way that things have changed, but knowing that we need to check in on each other. And and that's just kind of what I keep thinking about more and more. And not just for our personal safety, but just checking in with each other to see how we're doing during this this time mm-hmm. uh, of the year, which can be difficult for a lot of different reasons for for. For people, And that's why I like when we give attention to different uh, things that we can do for service, like on justserve.org. You can sure. go look for lots of different ways to reach out and connect or light the world. A loved one or maybe just someone that helped you out in this time. Just checking in on each other and saying, hey, thanks for all that you do. And I feel like this is important now more than ever. Coming up, more of The Lisa Show. Hey, you're listening to The Lisa Show. Disciplining our kids is hard to do because we love them so much. We don't want to hurt them or hurt their feelings. But on the other hand, it's because we love them that we have to discipline them when they've done wrong. And it always changes the way that you discipline when they're little when to when they become a big kid, a preteen, a teen, and so on. It can be hard to know when you've crossed the line until you're already over the line from mm-hmm. merely steering them back onto the right path and hurting their self-esteem or your relationship with them. It's a difficult balance as a parent, but it's a crucial one to maintain. So we thought that this would be a a conversation worth having right now with someone who has a really like a a different sort of perspective on it. Um, Author, clinical psychologist, mother of four, Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore, friend of the show, is is here with us to help us understand how we can practice soft criticism. Welcome, Dr. Kennedy Moore. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Good morning, Lisa. How are you doing? Good. So you have this practice that you call soft criticism that got our attention. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So you are absolutely right that we do need to correct our kids. And at a very basic level, one of our most important jobs as parents is to teach kids how to be in relationships. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to be putting up with behavior that it annoys us and we love them and people who don't love them are really going to be annoyed. <laughs> right. Yeah, so so we definitely need to do that correction. The problem is if we come in too hard or mm-hmm. too heavy heavy-handed, 
um, and say things like, you always do these mean things, you don't care about anybody, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, that implies that the next chapter in the story is going to be further meanness or further badness. Mm-hmm. We can't help children move forward by convincing them of their badness. But when we're angry and frustrated, that's, that's sometimes what it sounds like. Um, yeah. We're just going to convince them how bad they, uh, they did and you know, that they're not... just not a good person, but that's not right. So children learn not from suffering, but by doing it right. Mm. Okay. That's what we want to do, to get these kids back on track for being a good kid, being a kind person. So one of the techniques that I've come up with, which is it works, you know, it works with children, it works with parents, it works with coworkers, uh, is what I call a soft criticism. We start by giving an excuse. Mm-hmm. The excuse says that we know they're a good person with good intentions even when they mess up. The other benefit of the excuse is in order to come up with a plausible excuse, we have to stop for a second and see things from their perspective, mm. which is going to raise our empathy and lower our anger, and that's just a good place to be starting. So if we give an excuse, they don't have to come up with one. And, you know, that's a normal response to criticism. We all do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not my fault, and she does it worse, and you do it too. Yeah. And usually that's we encourage nowhere. our kids not to give us excuses. We want them to own it. <laughs> well, we, and, and we can. So the step one is we give an excuse. And the excuse might be something like, I know you didn't mean to. You probably didn't realize. Hmm. I get that you were trying to, whatever it was. So we're putting ourselves on the same side as the kid. It seems like then we're we giving do. them the benefit of the doubt. That's exactly right. And, and to know that their intentions are usually good, right? Mm-hmm. And, which is true. You know, we love them. Of course, their, their intentions are usually good. So then, or, you know, they were under some circumstances that they're, I know you were so frustrated when yeah. he kept doing whatever he was doing. So we're, we're just lowering that instinctive defensiveness that we all have. But, but I, I want to not stopping there. No, yeah, don't no, stop no, there. No, but I want to interject because what if you knew that they were doing it intentionally and you don't, you, you, you don't know, you're, raise you're, a you're not, you're not, yeah, you're not surprised that they would do this. It's like, no, you, you know, darn well what you're doing. I have this. I mean, that for me was probably the times when I would go over the edge the most as I'm like, no, you know, perfectly well what you are doing. You, sure. you have baited me into this and now. Soft criticism out the door. Let's get at it. (laughs) But remember, we want to be effective. Well, well, okay. The uh, the other thing is that, okay, maybe they did it deliberately, but in their eyes they had some some rationale, some reason why they did that. Hmm. So uh, I get that your brother's been bothering you all afternoon and you're just so frustrated with him. Um, yeah. we, can, we can put ourselves mm. on their side for the moment there, but we're definitely not stopping there because step two is the part we want, yeah. which is <laughs> the but. And here that I recommend that parents say, when you insert the bad behavior, um, bad outcome or bad, bad result. So when you, bad outcome, bad result. So um, maybe you're, you're, the situation is your kid is doing homework and you say, I get that you were really working hard on your homework and really frustrated with that, that math thing, and you asked your brother four times to stop making noise, and he just wouldn't, and you were so frustrated. There's our excuse. Mm-hmm. But when you throw a shoe at him, you could really hurt him. So we're not accepting the bad behavior. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the good intentions, but we're calling them on the bad behavior and how it could hurt other people or how it could um, inconvenience you <laughs> or cause problems for them or something like that. And then the third step is we move forward. Okay. So here, if we can, we want to ask a question. So it might be, what can you do to help her feel better? I love that question. Think about it, because now we've skipped all the part. We've moved past all the part about, you know, whose fault is it? And we're talking about what happens next. We can't erase what just happened, but we can move forward in a kind way. So I love the question, what can you do to help her feel better? And now we're talking about getting the kid back on track with being a good kid. Or sometimes you might want to say, what can we do to prevent this? Mm, And... mm -hmm. um, then we've got the child involved in coming up with solutions. Or, 
you know, what can you do next time to make sure that this doesn't happen again? So there are a lot of questions that you can do. Or sometimes you just spell it out and say, from now on, could you please? <laughs> um, <laughs> but if we're asking, then we're, we're shifting their attention from debating the badness to, or, or defending themselves to moving forward in a good way. Now, as adults, mm-hmm. we can all say, well, I did this one bad thing, but overall I'm a good person. Kids can't do that. They feel totally bad. Um, so that's why it is so, so hard for kids to fess up. You know, and when we as adults come in like prosecuting attorneys, like, admit your badness. Yeah, admit you meant anywhere. to hurt them. Objection, yeah. you. I, I want, the, yeah, if you feel bad, then my assumption as a parent is, is then you won't do it again. But that's not always the case. My experience is that it's going to lead to defensiveness um, and blaming everybody else, which annoys parents, you know, because we want them to take responsibility. I agree. So let's help them to take responsibility. And then, you know, after they've brought some ice for the kid that they hurt or, you know, cleaned up the mess that they made, how can you make this right is a really good good question. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we can say, well, that, that that was a really kind thing to do. And we're I, back on track with this. Yeah. I love this so uh-huh. much. Uh, my question is, I don't think that this would be my my natural inclination. In the heat of the moment. In the heat of the moment. Oh, oh, I think I would be like, okay, well, you know, uh, Dr. Kennedy Moore has some great three steps. I'm going to go ahead and follow these. What have you done? Kind of things. How, how when, you, when you work and talk with parents, how do you recommend that we... Remember these things, take a moment, process through these things, and actually be able to employ the things that we've discussed. It takes practice, but we can never go wrong by reaching first for empathy. I think that's true in life, right? So if if your spouse annoys you, it's like, ah, he's always doing these things, he doesn't care, whatever. Um, Or we can try to think, well, from his point of view, why might he have done this? And we still don't like it that he did whatever he did, but we will approach it in a much gentler way and a much more effective way. I noticed yeah. that you said he both times. I just want to point. I just want to. I just want to point that out, Eileen. Like, Stop uh, it. I just. All right, my next example is a she. Okay, okay, perfect. We're talking with Dr. Eileen Kennedy more about how to discipline your kids without hurting their self-esteem. We're talking really about soft criticism, and I, I, I think it bears repeating that there are three steps. Number one, you give an excuse or the benefit of the doubt to try to see things from their perspective. Number two, you clearly state when you do this bad behavior, this is the result. And it's, uh, you know, this is the bad result. And then number three, you move forward and ask questions like, what can you do to help her feel better? Or what can we do to prevent that this happens again? And my question is, is, is what have been the effects of implementing soft criticism that you've seen? And kind of with the same in, in the same question, um, does it work as well with older kids or teenagers? It absolutely does. It works with adults as well. Hmm. And what happens is it de-escalates. So it sidesteps the power struggle, and it makes it easier for the person to take in the criticism and respond in a good way, in a helpful or in a kind way. So um, you can even use it with coworkers. Hmm. I know you've got so much on your plate right now, but when you forget to do this thing, it really messes me up, you know, and I I get behind on everything. Now, with that one, you might ask from now on, could you please make sure that that gets done? Mm -hmm. That's so much easier to take in than... You know, how could you do that? You never do this. You always forget. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 A lot of times parents get derailed by asking kids, why did you, or or first, did you do this? Which just sets the kid up to lie. Nine out of ten kids, and I'm making up that number. (laughs) Well, and and then it's really great when we escalate it because we knew that they lied, right? Like we set them up to lie. We want to catch them in the lie, and so now we're we're upset for the bad behavior and for the lying. Exactly. But if we're demanding, did you do this? Why did you do this? The Mm -hmm. kid's going to be deer in a headlight and say, no. Um, so, and, yeah. and especially with the younger kids, 
so they want us to be happy, and they honestly think that, well, you know, if I if I just erase what happened, they'll be they'll yeah. be happy again, and everything's good. It's like, but that's that's a very childish way of thinking. <laughs> so yeah. let's let's not back them into a corner. We want to teach them how to do it right. I love that we started this conversation by you pointing out that we need to correct our kids because we're teaching them how to be in relationships. And knowing, like, as a mother, that they're... their enjoyment of life, their happiness, their sense of well-being is is so tied up in their relationships. That so is their success. You know, yeah. We tend to, to think that social emotional skills are one thing and the academic or professional success is another. It's all about relationships. Yeah. And so what, by us modeling this, we're giving our kids another sort of teaching tool or, or we're helping them to model how, how to do this even in stressful times. Absolutely. The other thing is we can very gently open their eyes to, so, so what fuels the development of children's relationships from that very early toddler, love the one you're with friendships, to mm-hmm. the intimate and loyal friendships of the teen years and beyond, is an increasing ability to understand someone else's perspective. Yeah. So we calm them down by acknowledging their circumstances. And then with the but, we're telling them to take a look at what's going on around them, take, open their, their blinders to see the impact on other people as well, so it's a, and act in kind ways. So when they do the kind thing, you can say, um, so here's, a, here's another one. Um, the, our kid knocks over the block tower of um, the sister. <laughs> and um, we, we go and say, you know, I get that you were, were trying to do whatever you were doing, mm-hmm. but, or that you didn't do it deliberately, but when your sister's block tower fell down, she's really upset. What can you do to help her feel better? And, of course, the obvious answer is help her build it up again. And then they're playing nicely. Um, But then we can come in and say, oh, that was a really kind thing you did. Did you see? She feels so much better now. And they they have a sense of themselves as, oh, I can make this person feel better as opposed to. And it's such a great feeling for right. them to experience. When, you, exactly. when, when we're engaging with our kids and we're talking about that soft criticism, I would assume that there are words like always and never that we should avoid. Are there other sort of pitfalls that would get us into trouble? So it really is about we, um, not backing them into a corner where they have no option except to lie or defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the did you, why did you, but parents often ask why. This is not a useful question. I know. Um, and, and, and if I may just interject and, and, and sort of explain <laughs> for, for parents everywhere who are listening, like, oh, I've done that. It, I think that we're trying to evaluate if, if this is totally dangerous behavior or not. We think that, well, if I can understand their thought process, I'll know if this is like dangerous or, or not. But it, you're never going to get the right answer. They can't answer that question. Hmm. Because um, the real answer is, well, because it isn't fully developed and I just responded impulsively. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're never going to say that. That's true. That's funny. So, um, and why is a really aggressive question? Because yeah. hmm. the, the, it sounds like, you know, well, why are you so stupid? Um, you know? yeah, well, that, it, well, that's a super so aggressive question. Kind of, well, that does sound, yeah, yeah is yeah. the implication. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's the subtext that, that we're not saying, but definitely implying. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, why is the sky blue? That's fine. Yeah. But, but when we're talking about people um, and explaining their behavior. So, um, but, but this is a really nice way that, that we as parents can use our deep knowledge of our children to help them move forward. Because, you know, we love these kids, and we know why they did what it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And even if it's because I was so mad, I really wanted to um, get back at her, yeah. <laughs> which is probably the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, focus on the so, so mad and have some compassion for, the, for that kid who just really hasn't developed better coping skills. So sometimes you're going to do this at a, at a different point and say, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, like, what can we do in the future? What can mm. we do the next time? Mm-hmm. 
she does that to you. Um, and what would be a better way to respond? And get them to think it through. And, oh, my gosh, you can almost see their brains growing in front of your eyes as they're, you're expanding their awareness to someone else's perspective and you're, um, you're letting them think through problem solving and come up with new coping opportunities. Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore, uh, an author, clinical psychologist, and mom of four. You want to get more information about Dr. Kennedy Moore's work, you can go to EileenKennedyMoore.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. As many of you know, here at The Lisa Show, we try our best to broach important conversations And sadly, some of the most important conversations we should be having are sometimes emotionally difficult or have stigmas surrounding them. Well, today, in an effort to break stigmas and open up helpful discussions, we've invited Susan Burroughs on the show. Susan's the author author of Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction, in which she shares her, her experience as the mother of a teenager dealing with addictions. And she's here with us to discuss ways to find hope and healing for families like hers with teen addiction. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. So teen addiction is a heavy but really important topic that's affecting a lot of people, probably more than we realize if we're being very honest. Can can you tell us about your experience with it in your family? Well, I think our experience uh, as a family was pretty typical and unfortunately sounds like a lot of families' experiences. It was sudden, it was unexpected, uh, and we found ourselves always trying to catch up in our mm-hmm. understanding of sure. how much trouble our teen was in. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts small. Uh, maybe they skipped school once or broke curfew, mm-hmm. and then it gets more serious. It, their appearance changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they change their friend groups. They change their activities or lose interest in their activities. Uh, and that's uh, that's where it that's where it starts. I think that um, one of the problems that we had that many people might have is that you're in denial hmm. for a long time because a lot of this mirrors what happens to normal teens. It just happens to excess, mm-hmm. and so we were just repeating, we're not those families. We're not those families. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, guess what? We were that family. So. What 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 was that point where it finally clicked for you? Where it mm-hmm. went from okay, this is not a, a normal adolescent development, but we there can't is live something. In denial yeah, anymore. but there is something more serious here. Yeah. Well, you know, there was uh, finding the beer can, I suppose, in in her room, and or maybe the paraphernalia, or um, you know, in our cases, and unfortunately, there were other high risk behaviors and. And probably it was um, the bloody bandages that, that we found, and we realized that um, there was cutting. And, and uh, we came to the point where we were uh, first uh, seeing therapists one after another. Mm-hmm. Our, our kid it was really smart. She made hamburger out of a lot of therapists. I hate to say that right. because I, I'm a great believer and uh, the value of therapy, but, um, you know, it it did take us a few tries. And then finally, it wasn't us. We didn't make the decision. Even after uh, she overdosed, she was misdiagnosed as a bipolar disorder, uh, overdosed on lithium, Mm. was very near death. And the, the therapist, the last therapist that we went to, took us aside after a disastrous session and said, you're running out of time. And those words uh, just changed everything. And even though we never saw that therapist again, I feel like she saved my daughter's life. So what did you do next when you hear those words, you're running out of time? Well, we had already uh, contacted uh, what in this area is called an educational consultant. And uh, they are a group of people who match teens with programs. Mm -hmm. They work with a therapist. In our case, our daughter was, uh, after her suicide, uh, excuse me, after her overdose, placed on suicide watch in a behavioral hospital. And um, 
they went to see her at the hospital. We first asked them to help us keep her home. That was part of that whole denial, mm-hmm. uh, that whole denial thing. Um, but at, at, after we saw this therapist, we asked them to make the placement. Uh, we had a, a particularly difficult night with lots of banging doors and screaming and mm-hmm. threats. And uh, this happens rarely, but it does happen. Our teen actually looked at us and said, anywhere would be better than here. Mm-hmm. You just need to get me out of this house, mm-hmm. uh, which is a horrible thing for a parent to hear and to react to. But that's when we went to the educational consultant and said, help us find a program. So you found help. You found a, a program that works. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who who are thinking the same thing that you maybe have thought previously, like, well, not my kid, or, well, it's just, you know, the beginnings, and this is normal teenage, you know, behavior. And and I'm wondering, because we have this stigma surrounding teen addiction, how do you how do you suggest that we break it and have these open conversations about how we help our teens when they're in trouble? Well, every family is different, first of all. And mm-hmm. I would urge uh, professional intervention mm-hmm. uh, for families. And I know this is a tough time with COVID and uh, not every family has access to uh, going to therapy or to going to the program. So mm-hmm. the first thing that I would recommend is uh, to try to do intervention as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, early intervention looks really different than these programs. So what that would mean is families trying to help their teen you know, assuming they they don't have a dual diagnosis or an underlying program, sure. if you have a teen who's experimenting with drugs uh, or with high-risk behaviors, then um, you can actually, early on, the National Institute of Health recommends that uh, people find other ways to generate the same rush and the same thrill uh, in their teens. So finding, helping them find a passion mm-hmm. Uh, is a great early intervention. And I would recommend that first. I would recommend that you take every step possible uh, to avoid the kinds of extreme programs that we were forced to use. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I did want to say that that, so avoidance is the first way that we deal with this, in other words. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, Mm -hmm. I think that uh, you just have to understand that drug addiction is an illness, like many other illnesses. And if your kid had diabetes, you wouldn't go around telling people, no, it's not diabetes. They just don't like chocolate. Right. 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 So I think that um, the more we are open, the more we speak about it, uh, the more it will become, um, you know, it will become normalized for us to help our children instead of hiding the issues that they're dealing with. We're talking with Susan Burroughs about teen addiction, um, navigating our way through it. Certainly the experience which you share uh, is more on the extreme end, right? Having to, to commit to a program and, and, and all of those kind of things. What what do you find to be the, the most fundamental um, starting point that, that parents would miss? Like as you see this in, in oh, other people in yeah. your community, that, that kind of stuff, like what, what do you wish you could grab a parent by the shoulders and say, be aware that this? Well, first of all, most of us do know somebody or know of somebody or have somebody in our family. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to be aware of is that uh, in Surveys, 85% of people are saying they know somebody with addiction issues in their family or they have addiction issues in their family. So the problem is everywhere. So, the first, so first we have, to, we have to acknowledge that it could be our family. Mm-hmm. It could be us. And then we start looking for those extremes in behaviors. Uh, we try to divert those extremes early on, as I said, with some you know, other passions. And it doesn't have to be athletics, especially, again, during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be passions. Um, my uh, other daughter right now, who is uh, stuck in the, in, in the house, uh, has made a list of 100 books that she wants to read. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so, 
So finding something to divert. Um, but I think that what we're really looking for are um, the, you know, a consistent, not a one time, but a consistent ongoing use of drugs, use of alcohol. Um, in our case, we had uh, our, a child who ran away, mm. um, a child who uh, was manipulative, who was lying, who was uh, shut down, who withdrew from us. Mm-hmm. Is we've always had a close family. Yeah. So, you know, seeing that happen, seeing these changes in their behavior was, was frightening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wish we would have uh, picked up on it earlier. Um, that said, I, I feel a responsibility, again, to, to say to people that um, this is not an intervention that you want to use for occasional, for teens who occasionally step out of bounds. Right, right, right. Yeah, Uh, I am struck by what you said earlier, which was everyone. This affects every family. This affects everybody that that there are probably more people struggling with this and dealing with this. If it's not someone in our own home, but it's someone close to us. What are appropriate ways to really talk to a friend whose child is dealing with addiction? What are the helpful things? Well, I think that... um you should, again, every family's different. I think that our family withdrew and we didn't really want to speak about it. Other right. families might be sick. Yeah. Right. It was just, it was too painful. I, I, yeah. I think that that is, that yeah. is an appropriate way because you, yeah, you're, you're in your own pain and, and certainly your friends want to reach out and support what, what was helpful. Um, the friends that didn't listen to me, I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> knew what you helpful. meant. The, those persistent, insistent yeah. friends. Yeah, I I think that um, for me it was the the friends who were insensitive enough to still call and sort of excuse the terminology, but brag on their kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and I would just be like, oh, you know, what what did they do different? What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. So. Um, I remember one time I was in a craft store with my other child and, and, uh, a parent came walking by with their kid and, uh, you know, she had her arm around her daughter and they were chatting about Mm. where they were going for lunch. And I just, you know, just broke down in tears in the middle of the craft store. It was just, uh, it's, I, I don't wish this on anybody, but at the same time, it's so hard to see what could have been. So I would urge people to be sensitive to the fact that uh, whether you see it or not, there's just a lot of pain and a lot of shame and uh, to be sensitive to that. It's yeah. interesting. You pointed mm-hmm. out the example that, that I really appreciate in putting it in perspective about like diabetes, right? Like we wouldn't apologize mm-hmm. for that. And, and it's interesting um, putting what you just said in that same context like, I don't think that you would ever see a parent that would say, what did I do wrong that my child has diabetes? That, mm-hmm. you know, what did I do wrong right. that my child has cancer? That's not how that works. That's not how it is. I, I would be curious to know, now that you're um, on this side mm-hmm. of the journey through addiction, what is, what is life like? What is that relationship like? What is today like? Today's good. Um, we, we had a lot of trust building. And... Um, we had a lot of uh, we have, we still have a lot of discussion and communication and one of the things that happened for us in these programs that even though they were extreme uh, they gave us a channel to start having moderated conversations mm-hmm. with each other and um, um, I really uh, found that by respecting by hearing by validating uh, what my child had to say. Uh, we could rebuild the trust. And I think that the entire family, because um, we did everything. We did everything with her. We went to therapy with her. We went to therapy on our own. Hmm. We read everything that she read. We slept out in the snow. So we tried to to experience what she was experiencing uh, during the during the time that she was in the program both to understand just how difficult the program was mm. and also um, to show our support of, of her and what she was going through. 
And it was uh, really the result of, she wrote me a letter. I have hundreds of letters from her during the time that she was away. And um, she wrote me a letter and said, it, it won't do any good if I change alone. It just, mm. it just won't. We have to change as a family. And wow. we have to make a, a nest for, for us to come back to. So I think that that was a gift of of this whole experience. You should always look for some sort of gift in what's happening to you. Absolutely. Um, we We know that only two out of every five kids who... Um, deal with addiction are going to find long-lasting sobriety, mm. and and that might not be the first time they try to find it. Mm. So we need to give our kids a lot of love and patience and support in every way that we can. And um, you know, we were very very fortunate as a family uh, that so far we are, um, you know, so far we're standing strong. Yeah, and. Um, I'm very proud to say that, that my daughter is, is not only uh, sober, uh, but she is also, uh, she leads AA meetings oh, and wow. she does outreach to um, different behavioral programs. So she's trying to pay back. Absolutely. Um, oh, that's, that's wonderful to hear. We only have about a minute left with you, mm-hmm. but I would love to ask you about why you decided to write a book about this and, and what that process was like. Was it, was it so difficult? It was so difficult. Um, the programs that we used to support our daughter's recovery asked if we would speak to other parents. And what I found at that time, um, you know, in connecting with these other parents who were going through the same thing, is that everybody had the same questions over and over and over ago, uh, again. Mm-hmm. And um, so we decided to, you know, to write about it. Um, and the the book is a dual narrative, and uh, now that it's done and we've gone through many rewrites uh, and tried to find a place where we could uh, um, come together in the book, uh, I think about the book as a love story. Oh, mm. thank you so much, Susan. Susan Burroughs is the author of Off the Rails, It's One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. You can find it on Amazon, and you can learn more about Sir Susan and her journey uh, by going to susanburroughs.com. It's a great opportunity to find some help and healing, whether it's within your own family or your friend group. Uh, a, uh, a great discussion. Man, you know, we, we, we sort of queued it up that sometimes we, that we talk about the hard things. I love that about this show, that we, can, that we can really get into some of those things that don't get enough light shed on them mm-hmm. and be able to just open them up and, and talk yeah. really raw and honest about it. Absolutely. If you are not finding and following The Lisa Show wherever you social media lies, is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, Be sure that you find The Lisa Show that you follow, and you are welcome to interact with us there. You can find us on the BYU Radio app, which is free. You can email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. What we're saying, essentially, is we would love to hear from you. I'm not going to beg, but I am going to ask very nicely. You're welcome to reach out to us. Thanks for listening to The Lisa Show.